The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give thanks to you for what we just sang about, that you, Almighty God, holy, 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 set apart and righteous in every conceivable way, set apart from us who are not, that you would provide a robe in which we can be clothed, seen as clean and pure, pure and spotless bride. What a gift you have given us. We say thank you. It is, as was said earlier, all of mercy. And it is given to us by a great warrior king who has gone out in your power, waged war for us and triumphed. So his garments are covered in blood. Ours are too in his blood. A lot of irony in that, Lord. We say thank you for it. Who would have thought you in wisdom and power thought it up and brought it to pass and have won for us a great victory and a new life. And we say thank you. And now we pray, Lord, that you would now use your word in these minutes that we have to help us to be new, to change us. Lord, would you cause in us a renewed thankfulness and a renewed praise and worship towards you and a a renewed vigor and yearning for more. Lord, what we see here today is informative, but it is meant to be more than informative. It is meant to be a, a stirring in us of thanksgiving and of longing. So do that now, Lord, I pray. Send your spirit to run through this room to cause us to be thankful for what you have done, for the person of Christ whom you have provided, and for the work on us and in us that you will provide and cause us to yearn. We put ourselves in your hands, Father, Son, and Spirit, and ask you to make us new for your glory and for our good. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 10. We paused here last week at the end of chapter 9, right in the middle of the story, with Samuel and Saul alone together on the outskirts of town, with the prophet Samuel about to deliver to Saul the word of the Lord, and with Saul surely still wondering how it is that he got here. He set out from home to look for donkeys. Lost some of his father's animals, and he and his servant set out and wandered here and there over the hills of of central Israel, looking behind every bush and tree, asking around. They didn't find him, and their 
They're on their way home, finally giving up, and they see a city, and they remember there's a prophet there, and they find some silver to pay the prophet, and they come upon some women who just happen to be there and just happen to say, the prophet has just happened to be right up ahead. Hurry and you'll meet him. They run and bump into him, and the prophet is just on his way to a banquet that has been set for Saul. Who would have thought? Well, God thought. God, God's the one who did it. And we know that he was behind the whole thing because he told Samuel so the day before it happened. We read in chapter 9, verse 16, Tomorrow I will send to you a man who is the one that I have chosen for you to anoint as king over my people. I will send him. Not he is coming. This is not just about God knowing the future. It's about God doing something. I will send And he sends him through all of those seemingly ordinary random circumstances. It's brought up for us last week the the doctrine of providence. We considered what that means, how God works out his plan, his determined plan. He brings it to pass through the plain old ordinary doings of secondary agents like people or animals or even weather. According to their nature, according to their design, according to their wills, people think and act and do, and God sovereignly controls it all to bring about his purposes, in this case, to raise up a king. Samuel knows that. We know it because we're we're told that. God is acting in mercy to raise up Saul as king. We know it. Saul doesn't yet, and Samuel is about to tell him, which is what brings us into our chapter. And I'm going to read from 9, verse 27, on through 10, 16, focusing on the first half of chapter 10. But before I do that, I will pass back through it to explain a few things. Before I read, I need to explain something about the very first verse, verse 1, because it will confuse us if I don't. So if, if you look at your Bible, verse 1, depending on what kind of English translation you're, you're reading, verse 1 is either very long or very short. And the other alternative is likely in your footnote. And to make a long story short, the debate circles around, should we translate the original Hebrew into English or should we translate the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew into English? If you go one way, it's longer. If you go one way, it's shorter. And to put both of them there, one's in the footnote, one's in the text, depending on which the authors, the translators of your particular Bible think is best. Mine has the longer one. So when I read it, I'm going to read a whole bunch of words that aren't in some of your translations. I'm explaining it beforehand. I'm going to read the longer one for consistency's sake because I'm going to read the whole text from my translation. But I think the shorter one is right. So I'm going to preach it just using the words from the shorter one. So let me read that. With that, let me read 927 through 1016 of 1 Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, 
The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gebeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where would you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. The word of the Lord. We see from the end of 9 that the, Samuel has, that the servant of, of Saul has gone on ahead and then Samuel pulls out a flask of oil and in a symbolism like what God had said to do to set aside priests, particularly the high priest, pours oil out of the flask onto the head of Saul and anoints him and kisses him. A sign of unique blessing, anointing, that is, identifying and marking out this particular one as blessed by God. And he does so because the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. That word prince, again, we saw that word last week, a word about being kind of the second in line to the throne. He, he, Saul is to be king. But this word keeps popping up here and there, reminding us that he is a number two in line king. God has not surrendered ownership of his people, and he still calls them here and, and in chapter 9 repeatedly, mine, my heritage, my inheritance. Tell him, Samuel, tell him, I'm making him king over mine. Make that clear to him. I'm still in charge. They still belong to me. And, and Samuel does make that clear. And so as to confirm to Saul that he, that God actually is in this, that Saul actually is becoming king. He says there will be three signs this day. 
and they are very specific. And part of the point of the signs is the, is the specificity to show there's no way this could work out unless God is doing it. God is actually in this, Saul. Let me, let me show it to you. So that's part of the point. But there is in each of the three signs uh, another little shade of nuance. And particularly in the first two, there are a couple of things kind of creating some, some background shading. Not the main points. The main point is in the third sign. And we know that because that's the sign that's told to us twice. When Samuel says, this is what's going to happen, and then it's told to us again when it happens. The first two are not retold. So the first two give us some background shading. The third one's the main point. But the shading's important. It helps us look at it. The first sign, verse 2. He will come to Rachel's tomb, and there you meet a couple of guys who have a particular message at Rachel's tomb. You can read about that in Genesis 35, but in brief, while Israel was journeying towards Bethlehem, says that a couple times there in chapter 35, Israel, Jacob, had just been renamed Israel. In that chapter, he's just been renamed Israel. And while Israel is on its way towards Bethlehem, Rachel, his wife, dies. While giving birth to, can you guess, Benjamin. So right at this spot, a Benjaminite was brought forth while Israel's actually journeying past here towards Bethlehem. A little hint there about something. Bringing up this idea of sons being brought forth, a blessed son, a well-loved son. Benjamin is, is the delight of Israel. But they're going somewhere else. Second sign, verses 3 and 4, a couple men at the oak of Tabor. We don't know where the oak of Tabor is, but what's significant is that it's an oak. And trees, often in the Old Testament, are presented to us as places where special things happen. Often worship things happen. And here they meet some men who are on their way up to God, carrying along with them the elements of a worship feast. They have meat, they have bread, and they have wine. A worship celebration in their hands at this time when Saul is being called out, raised up to be a unique son of God, what should trigger in our minds is the last time I read about this in this book was when Samuel was being brought up and presented to be a son of the Lord and his mother brought meat and bread and wine to the Lord. Little hints, little background color. And he takes from them the priest's bread. The priestly portion, Saul receives it. But the third sign is the, the main one, recounted again when it happened. When you get home, that is to Gibeah, finally he lives in Gibeah, people know him there. When you get home and you find a Philistine garrison there, a little bit of foreshadowing, Something's going to happen to you. You're going to meet a group of prophets. And when you meet them, the Spirit of the Lord, no longer oil from my hand, but the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush on you and be poured over you and will grip you and change you. Make you new. And you will prophesy among them when the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon you. Now this is not, this is not a statement about Saul getting saved, to use some modern Christian slang. 
Notice there's no discussion here about anything like the gospel, not even an Old Testament terminology. Nothing here about the Lord revealing himself. Earlier when, when God saved Samuel, we saw something like the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. That's, that's not here. This is not about Saul becoming a believer. But it is indeed about him being changed, totally redone, such that people who know him, it says, when this happens to him, are going to say, what happened to Saul? What's happened to the son of Kish? Something's different. And when that happens, verse 7, go and do what your hand finds to do. Go and, and do what seems right to you, for God is with you. And then go to Gilgal and wait. Well, that's what happened. Verses 9 and following say this is what happened, and everybody's surprised when they see it happen. Becomes even a byword. Is Saul among the prophets? Kind of like wonders never cease. Look what's happened to him. He has been made different and, and made new in some way. The answer being, as one man says, well, who actually is the father of the prophets? Not Kish. He's not acting like his father Kish anymore. He's acting like his father, the father of the prophets, the Lord. Something's been made new here when the Spirit rushed on him. And when his uncle, not Kish anymore, Kish is gone, but when his uncle asks what happened, he very discreetly avoids the issue and leaves that for later. That's the passage about what God is doing to anoint a king over his kingdom. And I'm going to make two observations, one much longer than, than the other. So the longer one comes first. Here's the first point related to the, the main thrust of the passage. God anoints with his presence the one he uses to deliver. God will anoint with his presence the one he uses to deliver. It's closely connected to the main events here, the Lord anointing the king Closely connected to why, what we saw in the last chapter about him looking on his people and their predicament with eyes of mercy. He wants to deliver them, and to get that done, he's going to raise up someone that he will anoint with his presence. What do I mean by anoint? And I need to be careful here because there's some language here. It, that I may use or that may be in the passage that this, for some of us, kind of some buzzword language and, and it raises ideas in your mind. So let me explain what I mean here by anoint. Anoint in this passage means a couple of different things. First of all, in verse one, we see that Saul is, is, receives this oil on his head because the Lord anointed you somewhere back. So before the, before chapter 10, the Lord anointed him. Actually, even before chapter 9, the Lord anointed him. That's why he sent him into this whole journey in the first place. So in one sense, anoint is something like a decree, a, a pre-existing determination of God. I have decided that you will be the deliverer. That's one meaning of anoint. But actually what this passage focuses on is not what happened before, but what happens right here, particularly in the third sign. 
Something that, that happens in this day, recounted here in these verses, where God takes this man, adopts him as his son, and pours on him a unique, powerful, tangible, near, gripping experience of his presence. That's what this is about. That's the anointing that we're talking about here this morning. God takes him, and this is not in in any way subtle. Here is a man that God grabs and changes in a dramatic way. The Lord pours on Saul a uniquely intense experiencing of his presence and power. See it summarized in verse 7. When it's all done, I will be with you. Now, of course, the Lord is everywhere. God, God is everywhere always. And God is everywhere with his people. But this is different. He says, I will be with you. Uniquely, powerfully present, joined to you. I will have taken you to be my son, and I will have come on you. I'll be with you. A little more detail, verses 6 and 10. When the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Think of, think of like a waterfall or perhaps a flash flood going through a narrow channel. Something rushing upon, being poured upon, coming and outpouring. The effect of it such that this one is changed. He, he comes and he prophesies in a way that everybody who knows him says, what happened? Different. He has made a new man. Something happens to him. And, and I say something because if we're honest, we have to be a little bit vague because there's, there's a box there. Uh, I remember them in math as called function boxes. There's a box there that says on the front of it something. A number goes in and a number comes out the other side. You don't exactly know what's inside the box other than that it's called you know, times two or something like that. Well, this is called God comes upon him. Saul comes in, God comes upon him. How exactly does that work? I don't know. It's locked up in the box. But what comes out the other side is a different man. A gripped, possessed, useful man. He is now much more like his adopted father, the Lord, and much less like his natural father, Kish. This is the Lord's anointing in time and in place, pouring out on him something that he needs if he is to be what God means for him to be, the deliverer of his people and the head of his kingdom. Saul needs God's unique Withness. Saul needs God's unique gripping, God's unique presenting of himself, God's unique showing of himself to Saul, such that Saul's mind is gripped and his heart is gripped, and he is supernaturally made new. He needs that because of what he is being sent out to do, deliver the people of God. 
which has always been a battle fought in the spiritual realm. Not a battle of flesh and blood. Saul is being sent out not just to fight Philistines with swords, but the whole, the whole realm behind that is one that is a spiritual war. The only reason there are Philistines in the land is because the people have wandered. That is the message in the Old Testament again and again and again. And Saul is being sent. God is raising up a deliverer to bring his people out. Who can do it? No man. Which is why he needs the withness, the anointing, the resting on, the controlling, the empowering of God. Because of what battle he faces. I thought of, as I I thought about this, I thought of a painting that I have seen of a particular moment in a particular Civil War battle, American Civil War battle. Battle of Second Manassas, if you must know. There's a moment in that. I know, I know some will think, what battle? There's a moment in that battle, and depicted in this painting, where there Confederate infantry behind an embankment throwing rocks, picking up rocks, bricks, stones, and throwing them. And behind them, just in the background, you see the lines of blue, the Union infantry coming on. And you look at that and you see, man, bravery and tenacity and commitment to cause and effort and futility. Because unless that changes right quick, that is failure. If your history is not real sharp, the American Civil War had firearms. And rocks are not the weapon of choice in a firearm war. So there's great tenacity, there's great bravery, there's great commitment to cause. And all they can do, unless that changes right quick, all they can do is bravely with every ounce in them throw their rocks and perish. If Saul is to deliver the people of God, he must have more than what his hands can get And what he can hurl with his own muscles. He must have something else. God knows that I am the one. God knows I am the one who must fight this battle. I must enter in. I I will use him, but I must come on him. And I must tell him, go out with me and I will fight your battles for you. You are the one called for by the people to go out before them and to fight their battles. That's a failure. But I will go with you. So he anointed Saul and gave to him what he needed to be a deliverer of the people of God because God is a great and merciful God who wants his people to be delivered. So you see what he's doing there. He's he's raising up one that they want and he's saying, well, like you want him will be a failure, so I will come on him and go with him. And do what must be done to fight the battle. It has always been a battle that is about what is going on in here. It is, it has always been a spiritual battle. It is, it has always been a battle about the people of God and everybody else 
So if you're not a Christian, I'm still talking about you. We human beings have always been in a war, facing a battle that is so little about what is before us and so little about what we can get our hands on and so much about what's going on inside of here, about the darkness, about the evil, about the wickedness that has gripped us on the inside and holds you. That's the battle. And if that battle is to be fought in your chest successfully, God must raise up one who can step in there and fight it and win it. In other words, himself. No one else. No one else can. And so God in mercy is raising up here a, a deliverer for his people, but saying, I, I need there to be a deliverance that actually works. I'm going to myself come upon you, myself control you, myself move through you, and myself deliver them in you. And he pours that on this son, taking him out of his own household and putting him in his own family. You are my son. I will fight through you. And this Benjaminite had it. From this moment on, from chapter 10 on, he had that. That anointing, that Spirit of God resting on him. And so there was hope for Israel. But unfortunately, he lost it in a short while. And the story of God's search for another faithful son of Israel kept moving on towards Bethlehem. Until finally, in mercy, the Lord raised up another king. Another better king. When he rose up out of the water to the Jordan River, all heard a voice, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And all saw the Spirit fall on him. Another king. Another anointing who is, as three Gospels point out, immediately then by the Spirit sent out into the wilderness to fight this battle. To fight this battle against the darkness that lives inside of us, to fight where we failed, to fight against our ancient enemy, Satan, and triumph over him and lay the groundwork for salvation. This is a great Savior. Far better than Saul is the final King, Jesus So you know that story, and you should think about it again, and you should praise him for it, that God in mercy has raised up not just a frail, failing Saul, but a final triumphant Christ. God is good to do that for you. But there's more here that we have to note, and that, that needs to be urged on us, because we are not supposed to only read this and think what happens here is only for what you might call top-line, capital-D deliverers. Saul, maybe some other kings after him, David, Jesus. It is, and we should, we should give thanks for that, but we also must recognize 
that each one of us, if you're a Christian, each one of us, this is a glorious truth about the gospel. Each one of us. Put yourself back at the Jordan River. Jesus baptized in the Spirit. But what else did John the Baptist say about this Jesus? That he would baptize his people with the Spirit. Each one of us. And each one of us, you, if you're a Christian, you are the object of the the Deliverer's work and then in turn are a recruit into the Deliverer's army. You are also involved in His work of building His kingdom, of bringing His people out. Who can do it? Well, not, not, not you or I either, which is why we also have been given the Spirit. So you get, you get to trace this. It was common throughout the Old Testament to think about kind of the, the top-line deliverers, the capital-D deliverers, maybe Moses would be thrown in there, as having God's Spirit rest upon them, and then there's everybody else. There's one incident in the Old Testament, you might recall, with Moses, when 70 helpers were raised up for him, and God poured the Spirit out on them. And Moses said, Oh, for the day when all of God's people are like this, and all of God's people have the Spirit poured on them. That day is now. And that is meant to be you. Which is great news. Because you are in a battle and you are armed. This should be great and encouraging news to you. Because not only do you have a strong warrior fighting on your behalf, but he has channeled into you, think of of a channel, a rushing outpouring of the Spirit of God into you yourself. The Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Spirit dwells inside of you. Great news. And more. Because not only as a Christian, not only are you to be indwelt by the Spirit, but what Saul is experiencing here is something more, something on top of salvation. You are meant to be filled with, that is, controlled by the Spirit of God. You think of it, if you're a Christian, you know the Bible, it might trigger in your mind, I say that, it might trigger in your mind, Ephesians 5.18, where a command is given to Christians who already had the Spirit, a command is given to Christians to be filled with, that is, controlled by the Spirit. Yes, you have Him. That's something more. He means for you to be filled with, controlled by, moment by moment, His Holy Spirit. And that is what you need to fight and win the battle against the darkness inside of you. Christ has made that possible. And more. Because not only does He give you the Spirit to live inside of you and mean for you to walk moment by moment, day by day, in the power of the Spirit, but then on top of that, there are times of remarkable refreshing when God's Spirit seems to be poured out in unique and abundant ways in places, on people, in times. We call them revivals. 
That actually happens. Do you believe that? I hope so. Because far too often, brothers and sisters, far too often, I think that we are content not even to live yearning for and longing for revival, and and not even to live earnest to walk in the power of the Spirit day by day, but we are content to live thinking, thank God I have the Spirit in me. And, And yes, thank God we have the Spirit in us. A down payment, a seal, an assurance of what is to come. But there is more, and there is more. I ask you, do you believe it? So as to ask you, if you believe it, do you long for it? Do you strive after it? Do you seek it and do you pray for it? Now the command in Ephesians 5.18 is an interesting command. You may recall from when I preached that. And if you want to look at other passages to be more exact about some of these things, I encourage you, look at Ephesians. I've preached that. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, I've preached that. Book of Acts, I've preached that. It's all online. You can look at that. I'm skating across some things here, I acknowledge. But that command, you may recall, is an interesting command. Be filled. Not fill yourself. Be filled. Someone else must fill. Who? God. God must fill. I am to be filled. If you think about this and you realize I have an indwelling spirit, praise God, I am to be filled and there are times of great renewal, great working. To acknowledge that is one thing, a good start, but to yearn for it and to cry out and say, God, would you fill? And God, would you pour out your spirit to move in dramatic ways to build your kingdom? We need God's presence You, brother, sister, you need God's presence to control you and change you, to change your perspective, to change your longings, to stir you. Do you long for it? I hope. I long for it. Sometimes. Other times I forget. Can we, as a people, long for God to pour out on us as a whole and on us individually what Jesus said He would give and what Jesus said we are to want? Great working of God the Holy Spirit. That is what is needed to build the kingdom. So pray for it and ask Him for it. Repent of your contentedness without it. Marvel at what He has given. It's a good thing. And I need to touch on the second point, which is shorter. Not the main point, but an important point. So here's the second one. Though anointed with the Spirit, 
The king is still subject to God's word. Though anointed with the Spirit of God, the king is still subject to God's word. Look very briefly at verse 8. Right on the heels of verse 7, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Right on the heels of that, he gives an interesting qualifier. Verse 8, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to offer sacrifices Seven days wait until I come and I tell you what to do. Do what your hand finds to do. Go wait, I'll tell you what to do. Interesting control that he puts in there. You need to think about that for a little bit. Saul is to go to Gilgal and wait seven days, the perfect full number of days. Interesting number there. That's how long he is to wait. I don't think that he is actually waiting for Samuel. Not exactly. Some think so, because eventually we'll come to chapter 13, verse 8, and we'll realize there that this is what cost Saul the kingdom. He didn't wait. But chapter 13 is years after this text. The years-long gap here. And the, the flow of events would seem to indicate that both Samuel and Saul went to Gilgal a bunch of times between A and B. It doesn't seem like we were talking only here in verse 8 about only what happened in chapter 13. It seems rather that there's a pattern being established. Samuel, you'll recall, regularly goes to Gilgal, and it seems like he's telling Saul, regularly go to Gilgal before me and wait for this perfect time, seven days, and then I'll come and tell you what to do. What's he saying there? I think what he's saying, get a little clue from the word wait, wait is not just kill some time, I've got a few things to do until I show up. Wait is, this particular word, wait upon I think what he's saying there is go to Gilgal and wait upon someone. And then I'll come and tell you what he says. I'm the prophet, and when I tell you something, that's what you do. Who's he waiting upon? The Lord. He's going to Gilgal to wait, and then Samuel will come and offer the sacrifices of peace, and the sacrifices that are the pleasing aroma lifted up to God and deliver the answer. I'll tell you what to do. So here is the anointed king whom God is with in great power who still must stop and ask God and hear from the word of the prophet God's command. Yes, he has great spiritual power, but even then, he is still subject to the word of God. And that's the caution to us, paired with great promise of power. Do what seems good to you because I'll be with you. Is the control. I'll tell you what to do from my word. There's no room here for a self-determining anointed one. And this, in fact, is what costs Saul everything. He eventually gets tired of waiting and just moves on ahead. And then immediately Samuel shows up and says, we need to find somebody else, don't we? 
So I push and I push and I push along the lines of the main point here that we must, that God wants to raise up deliverers, pour on them His Spirit, and we must have that same Spirit, that same anointing. But behind it comes in a smaller point to say, but that is not separate from God's command and God's Word. We must have both of them. So while we seek and cry out for God to pour His Spirit on us, we must also ask that His Word would dwell in us richly and would control us and shape us and inform us, teach us, guide us. After all, that's what Christ our King was like, full of the Spirit and always fully, faithfully obedient. So we are to be too. A people that knows the Scripture but seeks after and knows its need for, longs for and asks God for His Spirit to be outpoured on us. Brothers and sisters, we must have that. We must. We must be a church like that. So seek it. Ask Him for it. Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. Direct me. Control me. Have your way with me. So I'm going to pray for now, for us, and then give you a minute to think about it before we close. Father, would you please pour out on us your Spirit? We have a great need. We we have, Lord, I think a need that we are largely unaware of. We have a great need for you to change us and make us new and different. So would you, would you release something? Would you open up the gates of heaven and pour on us someone? We read in history about how you have done that in dramatic ways. We would ask for that, that you would bring revival and cause fruit to grow in the barren places. We read in the Scriptures how you command us to walk with you day by day, mindful of you and controlled by you. And so I ask, would you do that? Would you arrest your people's attention, grip their hearts, show them Christ and His beauty, and move them to follow your decrees? And for some here who don't know you, Lord, and and struggle with and flail away at and fail in the face of the darkness that lives inside of them, would you bring them to Christ and His cross and save them? Give them your Spirit, power to be made new. This is our great need, and Lord, would you do it, please. Have mercy on us, your people. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.